Well, it is good to be here uh, with you all. Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to open it up to the book of Titus. We're going to be in Titus chapter 3 this morning. As you find your way there, I, I'm not sure how many of you uh, enjoy going rock climbing. This is one of the activities we, we haven't really gotten into yet as moving to Chilliwack. We've enjoyed a lot of different outdoor activities, but, but outdoor rock climbing. I'm not talking about in a gym. I'm talking about actually on the side of a, a mountain. I'm not sure how many of you enjoy that. It, it's one of those that still, I'll be honest, sometimes really frightens me to, to even try and do I enjoy going rock climbing in a gym. It's lots of fun. There's very nice cushions at the bottom, right? That's, that's comforting to me that to know if I fall, I'm going to fall onto a nice soft cushion, right? I know everything's been built exactly the way it's supposed to be, that it can actually hold someone up there. But on the side of a mountain, I get far more nervous because what you end up doing is you have to put these little, little bolts into the side of the mountain, and then I, I watch people online, and, they, and then they just lean on that. They let themselves hang and dangle. And I'll be honest, my hands start sweating. Like, I, I look at that and I'm like, whoa, I, I don't know if I can do that. Like, that, that's just nerve-wracking to me. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about this, so I, I decided to do some digging. And by digging, I mean I asked Justin, our resident rock climber, um, and I said, uh, okay, first of all, A, what are those things called? They're called bolts. I found that out. Uh, second of all, how much do they actually hold? If you put one of those in, how much weight is that able to carry? And so here's what I, I found out, what, what Justin told me. They actually hold somewhere in the range of about 5,600 pounds. 5,600 pounds. I mean, that is enough, just to put a scale on there, right? That, that's enough for, for me, my entire family in our minivan to hang on one of those bolts. And then we could actually invite a few more people inside, right? That is an incredible amount of weight. It doesn't matter what you do. That thing is not actually coming off the wall. And in one sense, you know, it, as you are going rock climbing, it really doesn't matter whether you know that or not. It doesn't matter whether you know how much weight that bolt, that anchor is able to withstand, it doesn't change how much it's going to function, right? The bolt doesn't say, oh, they know I'm supposed to hold up 5,000 pounds, I better actually do that this time. No, it doesn't change anything about how much that anchor is going to hold. What does it do? It changes how you act, right? It changes how you would actually climb, because if you can't trust that, you're going to climb, you're going to go about this very, very differently than if you can actually trust that anchor. I'm going to argue it's very much the same when it comes to our salvation. In one sense, there's only a few things you really need to know in terms of about Jesus, who he is, in order to be saved, and yet the Bible contains a lot of information about how God has saved us. And you might say, well, what difference does it make? Well, it makes a di big difference on how we walk, how we live our Christian life, whether or not that salvation is something you can actually depend on, lean on, trust on, actually put your weight onto it. It makes a big difference to how we live. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going we're to dig a little bit into our salvation. How is it that, that God actually has done this work of salvation? What does that look like? If you've been with us uh, for the past couple of weeks, we have been going through a series on the Trinity. How does our, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
right? We said there's one God who exists as three persons. Each person is fully and completely God, right? And, it, and that hurts everyone's head, and we go, I, I sort of get it. But what we want to look at is, is not just how, that is that, how does that exist, but, but really how does God operate as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in different areas of life and particularly in our salvation. And my hope, my prayer, as, as we walk through this, as we begin to dig into this just a little bit, it actually that gives us the trust to genuinely lean and walk with God. So if you have your Bibles open, let me invite you to turn. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to land. We've been jumping around a lot in this series. We're going to stay a little bit closer to this text, and we're going to see why in just a second here. But we're going to read Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 4. We haven't had a lot of opportunity to do that in the past couple of weeks, so let me invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God. Starting in verse 4, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As far as the reading of God's word, you may have a seat. Amen. This is, this is in reality a very short little pack passage, and yet what's packed into this, these few little verses is so much about what God has done. In fact, Paul here, as he is writing this letter to, to Titus, his, his protege, very similar to Timothy, if you are familiar, he writes to them and he packs in all this information about how our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together in our salvation. And so I said, I, I want us to be able to, to, to actually lean in and, and trust what God has done. But I have another purpose I, I'd like us to, to, to work through as we go through this passage. And that is actually to be able to thank God, to be able to thank him, to praise him accurately for what he's done. I don't know if you've ever gotten like a, a thank you note Right? Sometimes you get them from after like a, a wedding ceremony or something like that, and you get a, a thank you note for your gift. And they say, thank you so much for the, for the toaster oven. We love it. We're using it all the time. And you think to yourself, I didn't give them a toaster oven. Right? The, the thank you doesn't really ring true. You might say, well, I'm sure they're grateful in some weird sense, but, but unless they're actually saying thank you for, for what you gave, it doesn't ring. In so many instances, we're, we're thankful to God, but we're so vague we don't actually know, you know, it, was this something the Father did, the Son did, the Holy Spirit did? Was this some combination? I want us to actually be able to say, thank you. How do we thank and praise each member of the Trinity for our salvation? So we're going to look at those two things as we walk through this passage. How do we trust God more because of what he's done? And how do we thank God more for what he has done? So we trust and we praise the Father for his mercy, the Spirit for his renewal, and the Son for our justification. So let's walk through this passage. And as we do so, I actually am going to start us, well, one verse earlier, right? So we're talking about salvation. And to talk about salvation means, well, we actually first need to start and say, well, what are we being saved from? 
right? If we're being saved, it must imply that there's something we need to be saved from. So what exactly do we need to be saved from? Well, back up one verse in our passage to verse 3. He says, Paul writing, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Right? Here's, here's the bad news before we can get to the, to the good news. What are we needing to be saved from? Right? If you've been in church for a while, you're like, sin. I got it. I already know the answer. The answer is sin. There it is. Boom. You're right. What exactly is the problem with sin? See, sometimes in church, we, we, we get ourselves a little bit confused. Yeah, we, we know the answer is sin, but what exactly is the problem there? Right? Is the problem that, that, that sin causes all kinds of bad things? Certainly it does. Right? You get angry with someone and you, and you lash out. Right? You hurt that relationship. You damage them or, or whatever. Right? Anger has all kinds of bad things that come from it. So, so certainly that's the problem with sin. Well, that's actually not what the Bible says. That, that's not the, the ultimate issue with sin. Certainly that is a problem, but, but if I can use a bit of an analogy, if you have a, a tumor that's growing on your neck, your biggest problem isn't that you can't turn your neck. That's not your biggest problem in life. No, your biggest problem is that tumor is going to kill you. In fact, that's exactly what the Bible is saying about our sin. Ultimately, yes, there are lots of consequences that come from sin. We hurt others, and that's not a good thing. But the bigger problem is that God says one day he's going to judge our sin. Here is the biggest problem we have, that one day God is going to judge what we have done, and in fact, that the punishment for our sin is death. That's a much bigger problem than a relationship that gets broken, as much as that is a problem. But actually, we have another problem with sin, too. We have another problem, and that is, that, that is, it's not just about the things that we do. It's about the things that we love. In fact, if you can look back to the verse we just read, Paul lists all these things, uh, but very few of them are, are actions. They're, they're heart conditions, right? He writes that we are uh, slaves to various passions, full of malice, envy, and hatred for one another. Those are heart conditions. Our problem with God is not just simply that, that one day our sin is going to be punished. That is a problem. But there's another problem inside, and that says our heart actually keeps wanting to do those things. Right? It's a little bit like the person on the Titanic saying, you know, I, I don't really feel like leaving. The ship is going down. There's a problem here that you've got to deal with. And yet, sometimes, well, not sometimes, the problem is in our sin, we're loving what we should not love. Last week, we looked a little bit at, at God, at the Trinity in creation. And we looked at why did God create? Well, it's an overflow of his love. He created us to experience his love and reflect his glory. And so the problem in sin is not simply that we have done something wrong. It's that we're actually loving what we were created not to love. We're loving the wrong thing. And so the problem with sin is both an external problem. There's a judgment coming against our sin. But there's also an internal problem that says we are loving and running after the wrong thing entirely. 
And so if we're going to talk about salvation, we've got to talk about those two things, the external and the internal. And, and we have to ask, is there anyone who actually cares enough to do something about it? And this is where we get to the really good news. This is where we get to the good news of salvation. The good news is that the very God we have rejected and rebelled against, that we've disobeyed, that we've ignored, is the very God who loves us. And see, in fact, that's exactly how our passage here begins. So verse 4, look at it with me. It says, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Where do we begin this whole process of salvation? It actually begins with the love of God. And, and specifically, as we're, as we're looking at this passage, what we're going to see is that this is actually the role of God the, the Father. The Father's role in salvation begins in mercy. The Father is moved by his own mercy and love to save us. He's the one who initiates this, this whole process on our behalf. And I love the way that Paul puts this. Right away, he says, not because we had deserved it. The Father looked on us in mercy and love, not because we had done you know, righteous deeds, that we were good enough for this whole process, that, that Father said, well, yeah, you know, they deserve it. Put it another way, God didn't love us because we were lovely. God loved us in spite of our sin, looked at us helpless, hopeless, hate-filled, sinful people, and God had mercy on us. This is the Father who begins this process. And what I find really interesting right there in verse 4, he says, God the Father, our Savior. I think oftentimes we're not used to talking about God the Father as our Savior, and, that, and yet that's exactly what Paul is saying here. The Father is our Savior in that he has begun this whole process, looked on us, filled with mercy, and he doesn't respond and say, you know what, you guys made your bed, so lie in it, right? There's a judgment coming for all that you've done as if God is dispassionately sitting in heaven, has no care for any of us, and yet he says, actually, no, those helpless, stuck people, I will actually do something to help them. I love the way that Ephesians chapter 2 puts this. One of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. I'm sure I've said that before. It says, As you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Pause. Keep the verse up. Paul begins with an incredibly bleak picture. He describes our sin as being dead. Not dying, not suffering, dead. Not, not, not able to do anything, not able to save ourselves, not in need of resuscitation, need of resurrection entirely. We were dead and hopeless. There was no case, verse 4, two of the most beautiful words in Scripture. But God. 
that is our plight. That is who we are, except God entered into the picture. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Here's the bedrock of our salvation. It is found in the love of God. Why are we saved? Because God loved us so much. That God is love. And so the next time you think to yourself, you know, I don't know if I'm actually good enough. I don't know if I've done enough good things to earn or merit God's favor. The answer is you never have. At no point did you ever do enough good things to merit God's favor. God loved you in spite of all of those things. You are not saved because you are good enough. You are saved because God is loving. 1 John chapter 4 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Why does God save? Because God is love. He looks on us and he responds in mercy and compassion, not in anger. So how do we thank the Father for his role in salvation? Oh, we thank the Father. We praise him that he looked on us, not in wrath, but in love. That though we had sinned, he did not cast us away, but instead showed overwhelming, persistent, faithful love and mercy even when we did not deserve it. See, that is the the compassion, the foundation for how our triune God then begins to take action in order to save us. The Father shows mercy and he sends the Holy Spirit. Look back at our passage with me, verse 5. It says, he, talking about the Father, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So here we see first the the role of the Father in our salvation, overwhelming love that initiates this, that motivates us to, or motivates him to send the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is renewal. Regeneration and renewal are the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, we said there's two big problems with sin. One is that there's a punishment against our sin, but two is that there is a heart, our heart, that keeps on loving and following after sin. Doesn't want to be rescued, doesn't want a salvation. And so for God to come and save us means he's got to deal with both of those. And the Holy Spirit comes and he deals with our hearts. How do you rescue someone who doesn't want to be rescued? Well, God actually gives us new hearts, renews our hearts. So the Father looks at us, enslaved in sin, and loving the very thing that is killing us. And so he sends the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts. Romans chapter 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul's point here is that the Holy Spirit is the one who transforms our life. He does this work of renewal and regeneration. 
outside of that, no one is able to come to God. Paul here talks about the flesh, referring to our, our sinful nature. And he says, our sinful nature doesn't want to please God. It doesn't go after God, isn't chasing after him. And it's not until God turns us around that we even seek for him. If you remember a few months ago, if you were with us, we were walking through the book of Acts. We are following along as Paul went on these missionary journeys, and we saw the very first convert on the continent of Europe. It's a woman by the name of Lydia. This is what it says. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. See, Paul here is preaching the message of the gospel, this, this good news of Jesus and what happens to her. Was it, was it that she was clever enough to, to sort of figure out the right message? Was it because she was brilliant enough or maybe because Paul was a good enough speaker that he could convince people to be a follower of Jesus? No. What happens is the Lord opens her heart and she responds in faith. See, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. If you are a Christian here, that's your story too. Your story is not that you were brilliant enough, that you were smart enough, or, or that you took the right opportunities. None of that. The reason that anyone believes in Jesus is because the Holy Spirit has done a work in our heart to renew and regenerate us that we might long for Jesus. In fact, even in the Old Testament, this is what was talked about prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says, I'm taking away that hardened stone-like heart and I'm giving you a new heart. And so this means there is, there is no room in the Christian life for pride or for boasting. No one gets to say, I figured it out, or I saved myself. No, this is all a work of God for us. And this is the reason why we do evangelism. Right? The reason why we share our faith at all isn't because we think, hey, I have all the right words, or I have the right tactics, or... or, or fill in the blank. I have the right sales pitch in order to get people to believe. That's not why. We share our faith because we believe the Holy Spirit is at work to transform people's hearts and to draw them to himself. How do we thank the Holy Spirit for his work? We say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for changing my heart. Thank you for stopping me, for turning me around, for helping me realize the beauty and the truth of who God is and what he has done. We thank the Holy Spirit for his transforming work in our lives. The problem of our sin was we had hearts fixed on the wrong thing, trapped and enslaved. And so the Father looks on us in love, sends the Holy Spirit to transform, to give us new hearts that we might believe and receive the grace of Jesus Christ. And here is really where we get to the focal point of all of salvation. Of what God is doing, it's found in Jesus. See, if, if, if the work of God had stopped there, God had mercy on us and he had given us a new heart, 
I would argue we would be so much worse off than before. We would be so much worse off than before to, to know and to realize what we do not have, right? To, to be on the Titanic and want to get off and not be able would be far worse. But praise God, that's not where he stops. The work of God does not end there. In fact, Jesus enters into the picture. Verse six in our passage says, the Holy Spirit whom he, again, the Father, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. Here is the linchpin of our salvation. Why does the Father send the Holy Spirit? So that we might believe in Jesus. What's the role of God the Son in salvation? It is our justification. I know, that, that's another one of these big, sort of fancy theological kinds of words. But simply put, it's the answer to the other problem of sin. Right? We have a problem that our hearts are following the wrong thing. The Holy Spirit comes and deals with that. The other problem we have with sin is that one day God is going to judge our sin. That there is a punishment, death for our sin that is hanging over us, and so enter into the situation, Jesus. God the Son who enters into our world, takes on humanity, is born as, as a baby at Christmas, lives a, a perfect life, doesn't stray, doesn't sin even once, not even in, in a waning moment of his heart does he falter. And yet he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross, and there, at his execution, God pours out the, his just, divine wrath against all of sin. Poured out on Jesus at the cross. The punishment for our sin, the full weight of God's wrath, was placed not on us, but on Jesus. On Jesus' shoulders, he takes the punishment that we deserved. And, and here's why, among so many reasons, this is important. See, if Jesus was not actually God, if this was not the work of God the Son, we have no hope. That would be an a, a amazing but meaningless action to have taken. See, what, what difference would it make for, for one person to die how would that pay for, for my sins, let alone the sins of, of the whole world? How is that possible? Right, we often talk about this in terms of, of money. So let me use kind of a, a financial analogy, if I will, or if I can. We will say something like, you know, we owed a debt. Our sin owed a debt that we couldn't pay. We owed millions and millions of dollars. And, and Jesus steps in and he pays it on our behalf. It's a beautiful image. In fact, that, that is what Jesus is doing. He's stepping in the way and he's paying the, the debt that we couldn't do. But I want us to be, again, just a little bit more accurate, a little bit more, more precise as we talk about that. The situation the Bible describes is closer to us being in court and, and us having that debt levied against us. But our, our sentence, our, the amount we need to pay is not millions of dollars. It's not billions of dollars. It's not trillions of dollars. In fact, it is an infinite amount. 
There is an infinite amount of debt that we have incurred in our sin. And so it does not matter how long you work. It's not a matter of of ability or effort to be able to get to paying off that debt. No, the, the problem is, the problem is that's not something we can do. An infinitely large debt is something only an infinitely large God can accomplish. And so as the Father sits in heaven, has mercy on us, sends his only Son to die on the cross. Why? Because it is only the infinite God who can pay the weight of our sin. That debt can only be paid. Our sin against God was against an infinite God. It is only the infinite God who can reconcile us to himself. Paul writes in in Colossians, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our infinite debt is nailed to the cross and there Jesus pays for it all. How much of our debt is left? The answer is nothing. There is nothing left for us to pay. What what do we do then? We simply trust. We rely on Jesus. We trust that his death is enough that we are forgiven of all our sins. We trust in Jesus that his death and resurrection has paid the penalty for our sin that anyone who believes in him will be saved. As Paul says in the end of verse 7, he says that we might become heirs, part of God's family according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus has justified us, declared us just and righteous in the courtroom of God because our debt has been paid. And so the next time you are lying in bed, thinking about all the things that you should not have done, all the mistakes, all the the awful things you have said and done over all the years, and the guilt is just crushing down on you, it's true, you can't pay for that. You can't do that. But there is someone who can. Jesus has paid for all of it. And so we go to him, the one who has paid the fullness of our debt in sin. Do not try and work that off yourself. You can't. Jesus has done that in our place. How do we thank God the Son for his work? We thank him that he came, that he entered into our world, that he took on our pain, our suffering, that he paid for our sins on the cross. Jesus bore a burden we could not bear. When we didn't know him, when we didn't love him, when we didn't thank him, when we still hated him, he went to the cross and paid for our sin. We thank him with everything we have. The Father in his mercy and love has sent the Son to pay for our sins and the Spirit that we might believe. We are saved as an act of the triune God working together in harmony to bring us to himself. So if I can go back to my my climbing analogy from the beginning. As we look at that anchor of our salvation, 
we can say it is secure. That, that will hold up every bit that we put onto it. Every ounce of trust and faith we put onto the salvation that God has provided, it will hold all the way. We don't look at our salvation and say, well, what if I mess up? It wasn't because we were good enough that God saved us. God has dealt with our salvation. He has saved us. Our salvation is secure, and in fact, we can trust in the work of our triune God. So we resound with thankfulness. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Holy Spirit, thank you for your regeneration. Son, Son of God, thank you for bearing our sins that we might be saved. We rejoice and we praise our triune God. And so I want to end here by, by actually just pushing my, my climbing analogy just one more time. If that anchor is secure, it's not going to move, here's the, the last question we need to ask. Are we actually tied in? If God's salvation is secure, how do we know if we are saved? Can we know that for sure? The question often comes up when we talk about this work of regeneration. God does this work in our hearts that we can actually trust in him. So how do I know if that has actually taken place? Let me ask the question, do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust in him? Have you confessed your sins, gone to him, and sought only that he would forgive you? If that's the case, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, transforming and calling you to trust more in Jesus. What if you, what if you answer that and you say, I, I don't know. I'm still struggling with that. I want to invite you to pray the same prayer we find in Mark chapter 9. A father is running to Jesus and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. See, the answer to know whether or not we are saved is not to try and drum up something in ourselves, but to run to God and say, Father, send the Holy Spirit to transform my heart that I might believe more and more, that I might trust in Jesus more and more. We're going to talk about this more next week, but that work is not just a one-time thing. In fact, the Holy Spirit continues to work in our hearts over and over and over again to confirm what God has done. His salvation is secure. Will you go to him? Will you trust in him? We're going to pray here in just a moment. We're going to close. But I want to invite you, if that's you, if you're wondering, you know, is that salvation, does it apply to me? I'm still wrestling through that help me in my unbelief state. I want to encourage you to pray along with me. You don't have to pray out loud. You can just pray in the quietness of your own heart. I want to encourage you to pray along with me and ask the Holy Spirit to keep that work of transformation, to continue to transform your heart. And then after we pray, we're going to take communion and we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, Father, we, we thank you. We thank you that you have loved us so much that though we are not lovely in, uh, in and of ourselves, you loved us before we knew you. And you loved us so much that you began to work in this world that we might be saved. Father, thank you for the work of Jesus Christ that he came, that he died on the cross, 
that the punishment for our sins would be taken in full, that there would be nothing left for us to do or to accomplish, simply to trust in Jesus. Father, I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that transforms our life. And and Father, I pray, would you continue that work? Father, send your Holy Spirit to us here this morning that we might trust you more, that we might trust in what Jesus has done more and more, that as we live our our lives, that it would be done in, in in a way that shows our deep and abiding trust in you. Father, we desire that our full weight would be on your salvation. We're not keeping anything back for ourselves. Father, give us the Holy Spirit that our hearts might be fixed on you more and more. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. If that is you, or if you just want to talk more about this, I encourage you to come chat with me more after the service. I want to to help you understand more of what God has done. As we close here this morning, we're going to take communion together. So if you, uh, hopefully you received one of these little communion packages as you came in. If you didn't, Jessica's right there. She'll help you with that. You can go, get, go ahead and already begin to open it. The top flap is, is the bread. The second flap is the cup. But ultimately what this is here is a reminder of exactly what we have just talked about. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done. Our salvation, enacted by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. What we're doing here is we're we're remembering. We're reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done. His body and his blood that was shed for us. And so what it means then to take part in this together is actually to say that, that I am a follower of Jesus. To take part in communion together is to say that you have surrendered your life, that you are seeking to follow after the lordship of Jesus. And so if that's you, I want to invite you to participate with us. If if that's not you, if you're here, and that's not where you are at this moment, I want to encourage you, please don't feel singled out. Everyone here has been at that stage at one point in time or another where we've just simply passed them by. But this is a reminder of what Jesus has done, the salvation that he has accomplished. So as we eat here, let me begin simply by reading the words of Scripture. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.